Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis. This episode was pre-recorded in late August and is scheduled for release on September 20th, at which point I will be en route to Greece. Calling in today to Full HQ for a mailbag episode is healthcare investor Todd Campbell. Ready to answer some listener questions, Todd? Take me, take me with you to Greece. Take me with you to Greece. You could. I mean, we're we're clearing we're clearing the schedule for that whole week. <laughs> what a great time. Yeah, no, it's going to be a fun episode today where we're going to get a chance to, to directly answer back some questions that got thrown out to us. So that's, that's always a lot of fun. I think between the different show hosts here at Industry Focus, we all have slightly different styles of responding to questions. I tend to respond via email right away. You know, you ask a question and I'll either email Todd, like, what do you think about this? Or I'll, I'll come up with my own answer. But I know some of the other show hosts prefer to compile them into entire episodes where they answer live on the air. So that's what we're going to do today. And hopefully it will get the people that wrote in the answers that they need and maybe even encourage some more questions. Yeah, and maybe, you know, um, you got to imagine if one person's asking the question, there are probably a few others that, that want to know the answer as well, right? That, that's what they always told me in school. There are no dumb questions, and if you're thinking it, then everybody else is thinking it too. I don't know if that's quite true, but that's what they told me. <laughs> anyway, so one of our listeners named Brian wrote in, and he asked us how and why, how or why, how slash why is actually how he wrote it, do companies do phase 1B or phase 1-2 studies? And so what he's referencing here is we talk about all the time on this show, phase one, phase two, phase three, clinical trials to get a drug from being discovered all the way through to having the FDA say, yep, you are good to go. You can sell this to actual people for use. And it doesn't actually always go in that specific order. Sometimes you get weird trials like these phase 1B or 2B or a phase 1-2 trial. And so what Brian was wondering overall was why would a company choose to not go by the standard phase one, phase two, phase three, submit? And, you know, we're seeing a lot more of these too, which probably prompted his question. You know, it seems like we're getting a lot more of these, oh, in phase one, two, or in phase two B, or whatever. So it's not like uh, it's not like it's something that's that's so rare that you're not going to see it as a biotech and, or or biopharma investor. And I think it's important. It's an important question to answer, right? And probably the, the most the easiest way to explain it would be if if I told you, Christine, to go, you know, to a certain location in your car, but I didn't give you, you know, a map and, and you didn't have your GPS, it would be kind of hard to figure out if you're really on the right path to get there. And what phase one and two trials and phase two B trials do is they allow you to course correct. So rather than going through all of the massive expense that's associated uh, in jumping straight from a phase one to a phase two, and then from a phase two to a phase three, you can then say, well, I want to explore something before I spend all that money in phase two and make sure that I'm actually on the right track before I commit to a full study. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about the difference in scale between the three different traditional phases, it's huge. It's orders of magnitudes, more people involved, it'll take more time, it costs more money to run the larger later stage trials. So I completely understand why one might want to course correct along the way. When you think about the intention behind some of the earlier stage trials, they're just to establish proof of concept to make sure that it's safe and you're seeing some, not 
not even efficacy. At that point, phase one, especially, you're really just focused on safety. And yeah, so dose and safety, Christine. I mean, phase yeah. one and phase two, dose and safety. Yeah. And, and it's entirely possible that you get all the way through phase two and you're still not really convinced that this drug has the efficacy that you think it has. And so I can see how if I were a drug developer, I would be at the end of phase two. I would be staring down my options. I'm looking at phase three. I know it's going to be expensive. Maybe I don't have any positive cash flow yet so far. And so I'm trying to keep costs to a minimum, at least not plunge into the deep end right away with a giant phase three. That's when you might want to run a phase 2B trial. It's somewhere in between a phase two and a phase three. It's not quite as large and expensive as the phase three, but it can allow you to make sure that you really do have a promising drug candidate before you move forward. Right. And I think to help put that in perspective a little bit more, I mean, the, the research and development budgets have been under pressure for a decade now. I mean, you've had some pretty high profile patent expirations that have hit the industry over the course of the last decade. And as a result, companies have gotten a lot more selective in what um, compounds they want to bring all the way through the clinic. So the more that they can, you know, hone their process and their practice, the more that they can figure out what exact specific patient population, indication, et cetera, they should be targeting, the more likely it is that the R&D they're spending is going to translate into an actual approved commercialized drug that's generating revenue. And you know, just to put the expenses you know, in a little bit more uh, context for, for listeners, I mean, the average cost of enrolling a patient in a phase two study is about 19 grand. In a phase three study, it's 26 grand. So significantly more per patient. And then you think about the fact that phase two trials, maybe they're only enrolling, what, 40 to 100 patients, something like that? Phase three trials would enroll hundreds of patients. And depending on the indication, they can enroll thousands of patients. These trials can end up costing in phase three, you know, upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars into the billion dollar range, depending on what you're talking about and how many phase three trials have to be studied. So it makes sense to have all of, uh, I guess, to improve the odds of success. And that's especially important in, in indications like cancer, for example, where you'll definitely see you know, a lot more of this phase one, two stuff and this phase two B stuff and Alzheimer's disease, because those indications have such incredibly high failure rates already. So anything you can do to improve those failure rates is a good thing. Yep. And so some of the strategies that these companies can take when they go into phase three, if they have more and more data behind them that they've already found, you can tweak your endpoints to say, oh, well, I'm going to use this very specific way of gauging mental function in Alzheimer's, you know, something like that. Or you can also tweak the patient populations where maybe in oncology, you know that if a tumor expresses in a certain way, then it, it's more likely that this drug will have an effect. Therefore, when I go to enroll for phase three, I'm going to actively select for patients that have the greatest chance of success. Yeah. And there's so much information now because thank, thanks to, to, the, to technology, we can now record and analyze all the data from the trials that have been going on since 2000. And the more data points you get within uh, your data series, the, the more um, useful the information or the output is in doing that analysis. So these companies are getting smarter and smarter and smarter about figuring out, okay, will this drug work in a broad patient population? If so, I'll, I'll go ahead with a full phase three, or will it work 
in maybe just a limited patient population. So I'll do an exploratory phase 2B trial that I can still reference back to when I do my filing perhaps. And that may, you know, save me some money in having to do two phase three trials, depending on what the FDA wants to see. So I think that from an investment standpoint, you know, these, although having more trials may sound like, oh, this is going to increase total costs, the amount of money that you save by not running a trial that's going to be likely to fail more than offsets that. So I think, I think investors should view that as a, as a good thing. And then, of course, keep it all in perspective, because even if you succeed in a phase one, two trial or a phase two B trial, it really, you know, yes, it may improve the odds, but you still have failure rates that are so high across clinical trials that you need to still have a healthy dose of skepticism when approaching any clinical stage company. Yep, absolutely. Brian's email also had a question for us about the creative ways in which drug makers can extend their drugs patent life. Todd, do you want to hit on that a little bit? All right. So I think many people probably already know that if you have a patent, it's going to protect you for about 20 years. Okay. Problem is with drug development is you're filing that patent as you're doing the clinical stage work. And that clinical stage work can take years and years uh, off of off of your patent period. So you end up with, you know, a, a commercial drug that only has patent protection for maybe seven to 10 years. Um, and, and obviously, that's not nearly as good as 20 years, especially when you consider that, you know, at the end of the patent life, you're going to face competition from generic drugs. They're going to be priced as much as 80 or 90 percent less than the price that you are paying uh, or charging for the for 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 your reference drug. So, I, I think that it's more and more companies are looking at ways, trying to find ways to be able to get additional years added on to 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 their their patent protection for their drugs. To, because, you know, again, Christine, you know, to, to hammer this point home, you know, if you've got an, a billion dollar blockbuster drug, it's paid for itself probably within the first few years. And now it's all pure profit that you're using to fund your other R&D activity. So every year, every six months, every one month that you extend um, your protection is big money to your bottom line. Yeah, to give a specific example of the numbers that we're looking at here, and I actually pulled these numbers when I was looking at research for the last question that we just answered, but it's applicable here, so I'm going to share it. For a blockbuster drug, meaning $1 billion in revenue, when you break that down into a year, a calendar year, each day, that's $2.7 million. I think sometimes it's hard to wrap your brain around just how big a billion is, but if you do the math, like that's... That's still a mil- well over a million, $2.7 million every single day. So even being able to extend your patent protection by a little bit is extremely helpful and extremely profitable. One way that they can do this, the drug makers, is to engage the generics in legal battles. And there are a ton of different ways that you can do this, typically by challenging the the generic drug maker when they try to, to come at you with their own generic formulation of your branded drug. It'll add a good 30 to 45 months of additional exclusivity. Yeah, and we've seen that, you know, I mean, obviously we've talked about AbbVie in, in the past on the show and Humira, which is the the world's top selling uh, medicine and the fact that its patent is expiring, but it's got these other, it's using these other ways to try and, and, and maintain its market share and Humira sales over the course of the next few years. Generic companies have to uh, uh, tell the, the company that holds the patent that they're filing uh, for FDA approval of the generic drug. And they... Uh, the, the drug maker then has 
45 days to be able to send a, a notice letter uh, of getting that notice letter to be able to say, uh-uh, I'm going to challenge this in court. And as you said, between the court challenge and the appeals process, you're adding three to four years of, uh, of, uh, of um, protection to your, to your medicine, which in the case of a drug like Humira is tens of billions of dollars in sales. But those aren't, that isn't the only way, obviously, Christine, right, that, that these companies can um, skirt the threat, if you will, of generic competition. Oh, not nearly. One of the ones that you see all the time is by creating reformulations of the original drug. For example, a sustained release formulation. This would be something like Adderall XR. Yeah, yeah. And when I, the example that I was thinking of was, was Tevis Copax-1 which is you know, the most commonly prescribed multiple sclerosis drug with $4 billion in sales. And that's, and that a, fantastic, that's a fantastic that, example just because Teva relies so heavily on Copaxone. They're mostly yeah. a generics company. That's their one big hitter brand name drug. And as soon as generic competition hits for it, it'll be a huge hit for a company that's already struggling. Right. So what they did is they came up with a formulation that can be dosed less frequently, and then they began switching their patients over to it. So, you know, I think by the time that, the, that you end up with generics coming out on the market, on the market, you know, the, the majority of patients had already been trans, transferred over to this extended release uh, drug that obviously has much more um, patent protection and, again, shares up billions of dollars in revenues. There's other examples, too. I mean, we see this with Gilead Sciences, what they did recently with uh, reformulating um, their Viriad make TAF, so that's, which is safer, and now including that in all their combination drugs to extend the, the patent protection on all of their HIV, uh, uh, their HIV franchise. You also saw that with Biogen in creating Plegridy, instead, uh, which is a, a version of Avonix that lasts longer. So yes, that's a very, very common way that companies can basically maintain market share and keep those dollars flowing. There's one more that I'll throw out there, which is increasing the efficacy of the drug. An example of this is Nexium. It's a heartburn medication, and it's a form of a drug called Prilosec that only has the effective form of the active molecule. And it's a lot of heavy-duty science to describe exactly what that means, but it's a process known as chiral switching. If you want to look it up, it's C-H-I-R-A-L. Kind of interesting stuff. But with all of these different reformulations and maybe a, a different route of administration, Todd, how do these hold up legally? Is, is one method of extending the patent more useful than another? What do you think? Well, you know, manufacturing patents are pretty easily negotiated around, I think, by generics. So I, I kind of would rank that as being the the, the bottom tier. I, I'd say method of use probably a little bit, little bit better than that. And then, of course, obviously, you know, the actual um, uh, method composition uh, would be the strongest. So the reformulations obviously are probably are, are probably the strongest way to go for these. You're also seeing, too, Christine, is um, combinations. You can also do combination drugs where you take your drug and you combine it with another new drug, and that'll extend out your patent protection as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of different kind of routes that they can go, and, you know, you could argue – you could argue what that means for society or doesn't mean for society is it's a good bank or a bad thing. But I think from an investment standpoint, you have to know that, especially if you're considering some of these drugs that, that are uh, or buying shares in some of these companies that are making these blockbuster drugs. 
Yep. And just as an aside, the composition of matter patent, that's the original, that's the the hardest to challenge. That is what people mean when they say the main patent on a drug. Sometimes you'll do a, a quick search and say, what is, when does the patent on whatever expire? And there will be 50 different patents in there. The one that matters the most is the composition of matter patent. And that, that's the one that Todd was mentioning is the hardest to challenge. So moving on to our last listener question of the day. A listener named Rich wrote in via the Google form accessible on our Twitter account at MF Industry Focus and said, lots of aging Americans and prescriptions, but drugstore stocks seem to be struggling even before Amazon hinted at trying to enter the RX business. Why can't these drugstores and retail pharmacies grow or at least reward shareholders anymore? Hmm. You know, that is a great question, right, Christine? Because you look at it and you say, 76 million baby boomers, undeniably living longer and therefore requiring more health care. How is that not a good thing for companies that are fulfilling uh, or filling their prescription medicines? Yeah, absolutely. And there are a ton of different factors going into this uh uh, the situation for these. And we're going to leave aside uh, questions about the mergers. Well, I don't want to completely uh, ignore the mergers altogether, but for the very specific example that I'm, I'm not going to delve into too much on the show would be Rite Aid. We will put that aside because I feel like we've talked about that a lot on the show recently. But even aside from that specific example, this is a space that's seen a lot of consolidation over the past decade or so. Yeah, CVS and Walgreens are the Goliaths, without a doubt, right? They, If you add the two of their market share together, you probably end up with 40 or 50 percent of all uh, fulfilling all uh, uh, all drugs uh, at retail pharmacies in the country. So they're a great way, you know, I'd proxy to look at and try to answer this question. And I think one of the things that, you know, you look at it and you say, well, OK, you've got this great demographic tailwind. But you also have to say, well, wait a minute, there's a, there's a disconnect there between that tailwind and what we're actually seeing in the financial results of these companies. I mean, if you look at the trailing 12-month um, and year-over-year growth for these companies, you'll notice that you know year-over-year growth has been kind of range-bound at CVS since 2010, and that it's been more than cut in half since 2015. And if you look at the trailing 12-month operating margins for CVS and Walgreens, You'll see that they peaked in 2014 and they've been sliding steadily ever since. And that's because the cost of goods has increased for these companies. So you've got, I guess, a, 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 I don't know, a tug of war going on. You've got all of this demand because they are indeed filling more prescriptions. But you have to also recognize that, you know, they're facing headwinds tied to say, like, how much payers want to pay for these drugs, for example. Exactly. Um, and that's offsetting a lot of that growth. If you're an insurer and you see this trend that m- more people are are filling their prescriptions for more and more drugs, more expensive drugs, and you're still t- taking in the same amount in premiums, you're going to push back and try to pay as little as you can for these. And when you look at the entire drug supply chain, there are a lot of players in it. And each one of them wants to take a cut, which really puts a lot of pressure on margins for everyone involved. But since we're specifically talking about the retail pharmacies, that is something that you can see in the financial results. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at Walgreens' most recent quarter, you know they had an 8, 8.5% increase in prescriptions filled. They filled 255 million prescriptions, right? But sales, comparable sales at their pharmacies only increased 5.8%. So, you know, again, that disconnect, and that disconnect is due to reimbursement pressure. 
You know, if you look at generic prices, Christine, since 2008, they have been steadily, steadily declining. Brand name prices have grown. You know, brand name prices are up 200% since 2008, according to Express Scripts. But generic prices are down 74%. And more and more drugs are being filled with generics. So yes. as, the, as the generic fill rate climbs and prices are falling, you know, it's creating obviously all these bottom line um, headwinds. Yeah, what is kind of surprising about the generics versus brand name drug, as far as margins go, when you look at what the pharmacy actually collects in margin, it's much, much higher for generic drugs. And that doesn't seem like it would be the case at first, but it is. I mean, the, the numbers support this. You see margins of about 43% on generic drugs, and yet only 4% on brand name drugs. And so- Right, right. But if you're, if you're selling a generic drug for 10 bucks, and a branded drug for a thousand bucks, you know, right. which would you rather, you know, the margins become like, you know, you're getting greater margins, but it's on a, on a smaller. Yeah. You know. But then you also have the volume consideration where most <laughs> drugs that are dispensed are generic drugs. 85% of them now up from uh, less than half of all drugs in 2003. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think, Christine, what you're, what you and I are both saying is that you know, this, the generic drug business is not necessarily a bad thing for pharmacies because, you know, it's still providing growth. And as you said, it's higher margin, right? Mm -hmm. But because of the price compression that's going on, it is putting a little bit of a cap or a lid on the growth that it might enjoy otherwise. Yep. And since, you know, we don't know where prices are heading from here and stocks are forward looking instruments, you know, that creates some uncertainty um, for investors that's probably behind, you know, some of the reason or most of the reason that stocks have been a little bit lackluster. Yep. So that's the, the back of the store pharmacy segment of these companies. There are a couple of other business segments that I feel like we should probably also touch on. For example, Rich writes in his question that the stocks seem to be struggling even before Amazon hinted at trying to enter the prescription business. Yes, that that is true. But Amazon was a threat to these companies well before that. And that, that's because these companies also sell things in their physical store. And something that I'm sure listeners of the Tuesday Consumer Goods Show know very well, brick and mortar retail is struggling quite a bit due to pressures from Amazon and other online retailers. Yeah, I mean, they get about, I, I want to say it's like 20% of their revenue from other parts of the store. Yeah. So, you know, you start to, you, any, any kind of a hit to that, even if it's a couple percent over a course of billions and billions and billions of rev, uh, in revenue, um, is just going to create one more headwind that they have to overcome. And, uh, you know, I don't know how they, you know, I think rewards programs help to provide some insulation longer term. This is still a good business. And I think that, that's an important takeaway. This is a good business. But maybe it's not going to grow as fast as, as some people thought three or five years ago. That's fair. The last part of the retail pharmacy business that I think we should touch on is the PBM services, the pharmacy benefits management. Do you think that that falls into the same category of on the decline as the other business segments do? It really depends on how. OK, so you mentioned that there's all sorts of you know different points in the distribution channel, right? And everybody's getting their cut. So there, there has been an argument to say, well, what if we source directly from the drug maker rather than the drug distributor, rather than through the PBM using them to manage? What if we bring that all in-house and do that all ourselves? Is there more uh, cost efficiency there? 
And so, I mean, I think that the, I think that the PBM business is a, is still a good and important business because you can do things like drive adherence and reduce um, emergency room visits. And there's all in, you know, of course, mail order pharmacy is an important component of that. So again, a very good business, but I don't expect that we're going to see any kind of mar margin expansion, meaningful margin expansion within that business either. It's probably going to remain uh, uh, kind of a single digit margin business as well. Yeah, and that's that's just the nature of PBM is it's all based on volume and these really, really tiny margins. All right, Todd, so that wraps up our mailbag episode. Thanks for hanging out with me today and filming this a little bit ahead of schedule. Uh, listeners, if you have any questions like these for us, you can always reach out at industryfocus@fool.com. That's our email address. We're on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. And we also have a Facebook group. It's called Motley Fool Podcast. Go ahead and request to join that and we'll approve you and you can be part of our Facebook community as well. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Ted Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.